Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 220, The Crusade of 1101. The last time we were all together, we watched the Crusaders capture Antioch and drive away the armies of Muslim Syria. Those who purchased the Jerusalem episode got to hear what happened next. In short, the Crusaders pushed on to Palestine captured the holy city, and drove off the Fatimids as well. Bohemond remained behind at Antioch, determined to secure the city, even at the cost of his own pilgrimage, while Godfrey of Bouillon became the first Latin ruler of Jerusalem. It's about time we put Byzantium back at the centre of this story, and you might expect me to begin by analysing Alexius's reaction to the First Crusade, how did he feel about it? Was it a success from his point of view, etc., etc.? But the reality is nothing was over as far as the emperor was concerned. There was no guarantee that the new Latin Jerusalem would last, and Bohemond's control of Antioch was very much in dispute. Not to mention the fact that more crusaders were on their way to the Holy Land. As we discussed right at the start of this process, the name The First Crusade, like so many historical labels, is more convenient than it is accurate. Today's episode, The Crusade of 1101, reflects that problem. Those who arrived in Byzantium in 1101 AD did not necessarily consider their campaign to be separate from those who'd gone before them. The concept of a crusade as a singular campaign, didn't exist yet. This was still just one big, papally-sponsored armed pilgrimage to the Holy Land. The fact that men set off in different years did not yet require fresh labels. And while I'm on this topic, I should point out that the new Latin territories in the Levant were never called the Crusader States. That is a modern label. At the time, these eastern Latin territories were known back in France as La Terre de Outre-mer, the land across the sea. This in time came to be shortened simply to Outre-mer, and is commonly picked up in English as the less glamorous Outrema. In the summer of 1099, while the Crusaders were marching on Jerusalem, 
Alexius was busy dealing with the arrival of a Pisan fleet. The Italian city of Pisa was a maritime trading centre like Venice and Genoa, but unlike its rivals, it did not currently have a strong presence in the eastern Mediterranean. News that Antioch had fallen seemed an ideal opportunity to change that. So the city dispatched a fleet of 120 ships to take supplies to the Crusaders and to secure trading rights if possible. This mission is a perfect example of what we were just talking about. Lots of men sailed to the Holy Land during this first wave of crusading, whose stories are not usually included in the First Crusade, and yet their activities are a vital part of this tale. Unlike the People's and Prince's Crusades, this Pisan fleet had no particular need of Byzantine assistance to reach their destination. So as they sailed into imperial ports, they decided to simply take what they needed, rather than playing nice. On Corfu and Cephalonia, they behaved like pirates, stealing and enslaving. And before you think these were just rough sailors behaving badly, the fleet was under the command of Daimbert, the Archbishop of Pisa. Alexius had to order his ships to attack them to put a stop to their looting, this did the trick, and they passed on more or less peacefully to Antioch. Once there, Bohemond swiftly offered them the right to trade in his city. This fleet would eventually move on to Jerusalem, where Archbishop Daimbert would become the new patriarch of Jerusalem. This episode was a very worrying development for Alexius. The Italian fleets were offering the Latins in Outerima a lifeline. If supplies and reinforcements could reach them from the west, then they could bypass Byzantium, appointing their own patriarchs and holding on to key cities like Antioch. The emperor acted swiftly to try and prevent this from becoming a reality. He sent his fleet to capture two key ports on the Cilician coast, Seleucia and Corkyros. These ports lay directly opposite the northern coast of Cyprus, giving the Byzantines the opportunity to harass western shipping heading for the Holy Land. By now, Alexius had formally requested that Bohemond hand Antioch over to him, and the Norman had refused. Bohemond had also upped the ideological stakes. He dejected John the Oxite, the Byzantine patriarch, from the city and appointed a Latin to replace him. The Norman then made his pilgrimage to Jerusalem, where he received formal confirmation of his right to hold Antioch from the new patriarch, Daimbert. Before Alexius could make his next move, though, Bohemond was removed from the chessboard in unexpected fashion. In the summer of 1100, the Armenian officers holding the city of Melitene appealed to Antioch for help. They were coming under serious pressure from the Danishmen Turks, the nomads who controlled the northeast of Anatolia. Sensing the opportunity to expand his realm, Bohemond led forces towards the mountains. Unfortunately for the Norman, the Turks had been exploring the mountain passes over the last few years and knew which ones to occupy in order to surround Melitene. Bohemond fell into the trap, his men were slaughtered and he was captured. The Danishmen's took him to their capital, Neo-Caesarea, where he was kept as an honoured guest in their citadel. 
Neo-Caesarea is near the north coast of Anatolia, about halfway between Sinope and Trebizond. I've updated the map to reflect the new Byzantine-Turkic crusader split of the region. Bohemond remained in captivity for the next three years, which should have presented Alexius with a good opportunity to move on Antioch, but he was forestalled by two developments. The Crusade of 1101, which we'll talk about shortly, and Tancred. Bohemond's nephew, the Prince of Galilee, as he was now styling himself, raced north when he heard about what had happened. Tancred took charge of Antioch and spent the next three years aggressively defending his borders. As you know, it was too risky for Alexius to lead an army to Antioch and try and besiege it, so the emperor had to try and apply pressure from a distance. He sent men to retake Cilicia from the Normans and reinforced Laodicea, the port city to the south of Antioch. The hope was that by surrounding the city, the Normans could be brought to the negotiating table, or perhaps someone inside the city might offer to betray it to Byzantium. Tancred and Alexius would fight back and forth in these distant theatres over the next seven years. Tancred took back the cities of Cilicia and besieged Laodicea. Then, when his back was turned in 1104, Alexius's marines retook both. In the meantime, the Danishmen's let it be known that they were willing to ransom Bohemond for 100,000 gold coins. The emperor was very keen to get his hands on the Norman, and ended up offering the Turks the staggering sum of 260,000 nomismata. But Bohemond outmaneuvered Alexius. The Norman's friends raised the 100,000, and Bohemond convinced his captors that he would honour a treaty of friendship if they let him go. So they did. They probably calculated that keeping Antioch out of the emperor's hands was better for them in the long run. Bohemond returned to Antioch and moved against Aleppo, Antioch's natural rival in northern Syria. The Normans joined forces with men from Edessa to try and push Aleppan influence out of the region. But, in a shocking reverse, a Muslim coalition utterly routed the Latins in May 1104. Given the small number of Franks actually serving in the Levant, this bloody defeat was hugely damaging. The Muslim emirs quickly followed up their victory by seizing local forts and strongpoints, as did the Byzantines, as I mentioned before. In the wake of this horrendous defeat, Bohemond decided to abandon Antioch and return to the west. Next time, on the history of Byzantium, the Prince of Antioch will recruit an army to try and finally defeat Alexius in battle and seize Constantinople for himself. Alexius wasn't able to give Antioch his full attention during this period because of the passage of more crusaders through the empire. During the darkest hour of the siege of Antioch, Adhemar, the bishop of Lepuy, had sent letters back west, begging men to come and join the crusade. He particularly targeted those who'd made a promise back in 1097 and had failed to keep their word. Pressure on these recalcitrants had grown in the meantime, 
and when news of Jerusalem's fall reached the West, it sparked a fresh wave of enthusiasm for pilgrimage. Pope Urban had already commissioned new campaigns of preaching in regions which had yet to be fully tapped, and though he died shortly after the Holy City's capture, his replacement, Pascal II, continued his work. Throughout the year 1100, church councils were held and speeches were given, men were both threatened and inspired to sign up, and attempts were made to coordinate the departure of these new contingents. Alexius seems to have been ambivalent about these new arrivals. Though he understood their potential value, he now doubted his ability to control them. Once again he greeted the Latins warmly, fed and paid them, he extracted oaths and made them promise to hand back any Byzantine towns they took. But despite his best efforts, problems arose as soon as the first contingents were ferried across the Bosphorus in spring 1101. The largest group was an army from Lombardy, led by Archbishop Anselm of Milan. Alexius put them up near Nicomedia and instructed them on the best route across the plateau. But the Lombards told him they would not be heading to Dorylaeum. Instead, they would be heading north to Neo-Caesarea to free their hero, Bohemond. Tales of the Normans' courage and heroism had been spread far and wide, by those who'd returned from Jerusalem, and some of the Lombards already knew him from his time in Italy. Bohemond had been captured by the Danishmen's the previous summer, and so it seemed only right and proper, if one was crossing the plateau anyway, to try and rescue him. Alexius strongly advised against this, and not just because the thought of Bohemond in a dank cell made him smile. The emperor warned them that this route would take them through the heart of Turkic territory. He explained that the nomads were powerful and that the crusaders would be cut off from Byzantine supplies. The Vasilevs did everything he could to support the new campaign. In addition to food and money, he sent a detachment of Byzantine cavalry to travel with them, and he even arranged for an experienced commander to be his liaison officer, Raymond of Toulouse. Raymond had remained in the Levant after the rest of the Crusaders went home. He was determined to carve out an eastern kingdom of his own and saw an alliance with Byzantium as essential. As part of this deal, Alexius asked the Count to guide these new Crusaders across Anatolia. Soon afterwards, Stephen of Blois arrived with a contingent of French troops determined to restore his reputation after he'd abandoned the siege of Antioch. Raymond and Stephen joined Alexius in trying to dissuade the Lombards from their mission, but they wouldn't have it. They were marching to Bohemond's aid, whether these princes came with them or not. The Lombards were full of crusading spirit, and clearly believed that if old Raymond could capture Jerusalem, then they could deal with a few nomads. Soon afterwards, more troops arrived from Germany and Burgundy, and on the 3rd of June, 1101, Raymond reluctantly led them towards the plateau. I don't have reliable numbers for the 1101 campaign, but it sounds like this was a force of 20,000 plus. More than a match for the armies usually seen in Europe, which added to their overconfidence. 
The Latins now took the traditional imperial route across the plateau, arriving at Ankara by late June and quickly capturing it. The city was handed over to the Byzantines with no argument, but was of little use to Alexius, given its exposed position on the plateau. On the crusaders marched as the days grew hotter and their supplies thinned. Ahead of them, Kilij Arslan was waiting. The former sultan of Nicaea had learnt the lessons of the First Crusade very well. In the past three years he had established himself firmly at Iconium and worked hard to secure an alliance with the Danishmens and other Turkic groups in Anatolia. They all agreed that if more Westerners appeared on the plateau, they would act together. It was clear that these tough, numerous foreigners presented a serious threat to their way of life. They must be dissuaded from further attempts to cross the plateau. The surest way to achieve that was to destroy any army that appeared in their midst. No surrender, no negotiation. The Turks were wary of the Latins, though they now knew how strong they could be, so they agreed to weaken their opponents before they surrounded them. So, as Raymond's army moved east of Ankara, their foraging parties were constantly harassed, they found fields picked clean, and buildings burnt to the ground. Their camp was attacked at night. Scouts were sent out, who never returned. The local Byzantines were friendly, but the gates of cities like Gangra, built up in the mountains of Paphlagonia, were shut to them. By August, Raymond was seriously worried about the lack of food. The crusade was following the Harless River north, but was losing motivation and energy. Soon after they crossed the river, scouts reported that the main Turkic army was ahead. Aiming to settle it all in a pitched battle, the Latins raced forward to engage with the enemy. This was the Danishmen Turks, who Kilij Arslan had instructed well. They raced around and away from the Franks, peppering them with arrows until their formations came apart. Raymond could see what was coming and made a run for it an action that caused others to flee as well. Meanwhile, the bulk of the Lombard army was surrounded and slaughtered. Quite a few soldiers did make it to the Byzantine port of Sinope, including Raymond and Stephen, but the vast majority didn't, including all the women and non-combatants who were simply abandoned to the enemy. Lost amongst the valuables in Raymond's camp, was the Holy Lance of Antioch. Before we analyse this disaster, we have two more to discuss. The Lombards had refused to wait any longer to launch their crusade, but just as they departed Nicomedia in June, more armed pilgrims were arriving at Constantinople. William of Aquitaine had brought an army and had linked up with wealth of Bavaria in the Balkans. Amongst this contingent was Hugh of Vermandois, brother of the King of France. Like Stephen of Blois, he was back to restore his reputation after abandoning the First Crusade. A few days later, a force under William of Nevers also appeared. Again, I don't have estimates of the size of these contingents, but presumably over 10,000 people each. 
Alexius repeated his usual routine, and once more the Latins largely ignored his advice. William of Nevers set off on his own to try and catch up with the Lombards, but when he reached Ankara, the locals persuaded him to give up on that idea, and so he turned south. By mid-August he'd reached Iconium and was being harassed daily by the forces of Kilijarslan. The ideal solution would have been to wait for the rest of the Crusaders to catch up with him, but William believed if he stopped moving, his people would be overwhelmed by the Turks. So he pushed his group hard to march across the plateau and get to Cilicia as quickly as possible. But when they reached Heraclea near the Cilician gates, Kilijarslan was waiting. The Turks surrounded them and cut them to pieces. In a repeat of the Lombard campaign, the only people who escaped were the leaders, whose horses could carry them to safety. Finally then, the forces under William of Aquitaine, Welf of Bavaria, and Hugh of Vermandois began their journey. Hugh had more luck convincing his comrades to follow Alexius's advice, so they headed for Dorylaeum and then south. But despite being sensible, they soon ran into the same problems that the First Crusade had. Food and water were hard to come by in the baking heat of the plateau in summer. Kilijarslan's men harried them relentlessly until they too reached Heraclea. The reason the Turks liked this as an ambush site was that they had thoroughly sacked the city, destroying its cisterns and wells. So Heraclea looked like a refuge from a distance, but once there, the Latins found only desolation. Just a few weeks after dispatching the army of William of Nevers, the Turks fell on the new Latin force on the same spot. Once more the Crusaders, worn out from their march, were easy prey. The leadership fled the field, leaving the rank and file to be killed or enslaved. The Crusade of 1101, as it has been remembered, was a complete disaster. Hugh of Vermandois died from injuries suffered in the rout, while Raymond and Stephen of Blois sailed back to Constantinople in humiliation. Those who made it through to Cilicia would complete their pilgrimage and return home humbled. As Christopher Tyerman points out, these campaigns were conducted in a spirit of utterly ignorant enthusiasm. Allegedly, some of the Lombards talked about marching on Baghdad. They clearly had no idea of the strength of nomadic armies, nor any understanding of Anatolian geography. They were wrapped up in the crusading ideal, which in the wake of Jerusalem's fall seemed to promise victory to anyone wearing the cross. The catastrophes of that summer put an end to such foolish talk. Surprisingly, perhaps, they didn't dampen the enthusiasm for going east. In a sense, it only made the heroes of the First Crusade seem even more special by comparison. What it did do was dampen enthusiasm for crossing Anatolia. A group of Germans who'd travelled with wealth of Bavaria had decided not to take the land route after they'd heard rumours of what had happened to the Lombards. Instead, they decided to spend all their cash and travel by sea. They arrived at Jerusalem six weeks later, without a scratch on them. As Alexius had already realised, the future 
of Outrima depended on the fleets of Italy. For Byzantium, the situation was cloudy. Alexius didn't mind Latin buffer states forming in the Levant, so long as he could regain Antioch, and so long as these new states respected his preeminence. Latin clergy being raised above the Orthodox was not a good sign, but Komnenos could afford to wait. In July of 1100, for example, Godfrey of Bouillon passed away. His brother Baldwin at Edessa would be his replacement and the first Latin king of Jerusalem. Recognising the vulnerability of his new kingdom, Baldwin made friendly overtures to Alexius. Even Dame Bert of Pisa apologised for the actions of his fleet. Surely in time, the Latins would learn that to survive in the eastern Mediterranean, they must bow before the emperor of the Romans. We will return to Alexius's dealings with the Franks next week. For now, though, let's return to Constantinople itself and discuss a few domestic developments from the past seven years. The last time we actually dealt with regular domestic matters was way back in episode 204. Back then we discussed Komnenian reforms to the court, the coinage and social care at the capital. The financial crisis that began to develop way back under Constantine Monomachos in the 1040s was only really put to bed in 1109. It took that long for all the debased coins to be flushed out of circulation and replaced fully by the new denominations the government had created. Back in episode 203, we also talked about a major conspiracy to assassinate Alexius and replace him with Nicephorus Theogenes, son of Romanus, the emperor at Manzikert. That plot had involved one of Alexius's brothers, along with several other high-ranking men and women. The Komnenian regime must have been on high alert when the Crusaders passed through in 1097 and 1101. There was every chance that their political opponents would try to use the Latins to unseat Alexius, and the sheer number of coins and gifts being handed out to the Crusaders might have caused resentment or unrest. But the regime held firm, it wasn't until 1104 that a serious domestic conspiracy again came to light. This surrounded the Anemus family, whose many sons hatched a plot to kill Alexius and found support amongst some senior officials. The plan was betrayed to the authorities and the brothers were paraded through the streets before being executed. According to Anna, it was she who begged her father to commute their sentence to exile, which he did. Back in 1098, the regime also held a famous heresy trial. You might remember from way back that Alexius had tried the intellectual John Italos for heresy and followed it up with more trials of local holy men. The suspicion of modern scholars is that these were show trials done for propaganda value. The Komnenian regime were claiming to be restorers of orthodoxy, turning their back on the corrupt regimes that had wrecked Basil II's empire. Heresy trials were a good way to show that you were taking the state's relationship with God very seriously. 
The 1098 trial involved Basil the Bogomil, and was a much more serious affair, ending with Basil being set on fire in the Hippodrome. Bogomilism was a dualist interpretation of Christianity, similar to the Paulicians, who we've talked about in the past. Dualist sects tended to do away with complex debates about Christ's divinity and cast the world in a simpler light as a battle between good forces and bad ones. In Bogomil theology, Jesus was not human at all, but the force for good who'd come to help tackle the force for bad in the world, Satan. The key point for the Byzantine state here is that the Bogomils completely rejected the Orthodox Church. There was no need for an ecclesiastical hierarchy or sacraments in their faith. Bogomilism was popular in the Balkans, and Basil, an ascetic and teacher, had come to the capital to spread the word. Like the earlier holy men that Alexius had targeted, Basil had a popular following and drew attention from ordinary people. But unlike the others, Basil truly was spouting heretical ideas around the streets. He was rejecting not only the teaching of the church, but the church itself. The emperor had Basil arrested, and he and his followers were sentenced to death. As was his practice, Alexius commuted the death sentence to exile, but not in Basil's case. Basil was unrepentant, and so the order was given to construct a huge pyre on the Hippodrome floor. When Basil still refused to recant, he was burnt to death in front of the gathered crowd. For those who skipped the Jerusalem episode, you missed a comparable incident on the road to the Holy City. The search for God's approval and support continued to be a vital part of public life. And despite his conciliatory nature, Alexius was willing to be brutal when he had to be. We close today with an update on Alexius, the person. By 1104, Alexius was beginning to feel his age. He was only 47, but that's a medieval 47 not a modern one. He was suffering from what sounds like asthma and gout. Anna insists that the latter was brought on not by good living, but from injuries suffered over the years, including an accident on the polo grounds where Tatikios fell on him. Anna puts in brackets, Tatikios was a heavy man. This was also the period when Alexius was finally left alone at the top. His brother Isaac and mother Anna, who'd shared the burdens of government with him, died within a year of each other, around 1103. The great strength of the Komnenian regime had been family solidarity. Now that burden passed to the next generation. As we saw when the crusade passed through in 1097, Alexius had begun to give more responsibility to Nicephorus Vurianios, the husband of his now 20-year-old daughter Anna. He also continued to groom his eldest son, John, now in his late teens, and to lean on his wife, Irene. But Alexius isn't done yet. He has another 14 years left to rule, and next time, he faces what Anna claims was his greatest challenge, 
Bohemond returning to the Balkans decades after they'd last clashed in the very same fields. The two aging warriors will saddle up for one final confrontation. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.